How many fathers uh, have gone through that, uh, that moment where your daughter wants to start wearing a little bit more stylish clothes and you're not so sure about it? Fathers, raise your hand if some of your daughters went through that moment where she wanted to wear something a little more, uh, let's say, uh, risque, to say the least. You know, dads, uh, I haven't, you know, I'm not there yet with Mallory. She hasn't quite asked, you know, to, to get really stylish. She's only one, uh, almost one years old. But I know when the time comes and she wants to start wearing those clothes that are a little bit more, uh, let's say, uh, well, just not sure about, I'm going to have a very, very difficult time. And I can imagine you all have, those of you with teenage daughters before, have had a great difficulty in trying to say, I'm just not so sure, honey. You know, the moms, the moms go out with the daughters and, and they buy clothes, they go to the mall, they get the, they get the outfit, and the, and the daughter's trying to constantly tell the mom, what about this one, what about this one? And, you know, the mom, knowing the dad, is always thinking in the back of her head, what will your father think? I don't know, honey. What, what will your father think? I don't know if he's going to let you wear that. I don't know if he's going to approve. I don't, know, I don't know if that's the right outfit. In Romans 4, Paul's audience, particularly his Jewish audience, is saying, Paul, we're hearing you. We're hearing what you're saying, but I don't know what our father thinks of your teaching." I don't know what our father Abraham thinks of what you're trying to do over here, Paul. It seems that you're pushing the envelope, Paul. This whole talk of justification by faith and not by works and not, nothing with circumcision and nothing with the law. I don't know, Paul. I don't know what our father Abraham will think of that, Paul. The title of my message today is Abraham. Justified by faith, part one. Abraham, justified by faith, part one. And today, we are going to see Paul's Jewish audience saying, I'm not so sure, Paul, that Abraham, our father, would approve of what you're trying to do with the Scriptures. And Paul is going to respond to them in Romans 4. And he's going to say, oh yes, he would approve. Oh yes, our father Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, oh yes, he would approve of what I'm about to tell you from the Scriptures. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 1 and 2, here we go. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. I've said this many times, but it, it applies again here. Abraham right here in this passage is really shadow boxing a, an imaginary Jewish opponent. He is anticipating the arguments coming from some of his fellow brothers and sisters of Israel. Particularly, he is anticipating that they are concerned with his theology of justification by faith. They're concerned that Paul's theology doesn't meet the approval of their father, Abraham. 
And his opponents reason that if justification by faith, if justification comes by faith, then why is there so much emphasis in the Bible on things like circumcision and works of the law in the Old Testament? Paul's opponents are wondering whether Abraham's circumcision means anything at all. And, and they're trying to figure out how does justification come into play here if, if, if there's so much emphasis on the law and on circumcision. Paul asks rhetorically, What then shall we say? What shall I say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? He, in essence, he's saying, what is the benefit of Abraham's circumcision? What is the benefit of what Abraham did in the flesh? Paul's response is in verse 2. And it might seem a bit confusing at first. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now that's kind of a, maybe a little bit cryptic for some of you, that response. So I want to break it down. This is basically what Paul is saying. He's saying this. He's saying, okay, fine. Let's suppose for a moment that Abraham was justified by works. Let's suppose for a moment that he was. And let's suppose that Abraham received salvation by his own merit. What are the implications of that, Paul asks? Well, for starters, if Abraham secured his salvation by his own merit, then Abraham should boast in himself. If he did it, if it was his works that purchased his salvation, then Abraham should rightfully take pride in himself. Right? He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. In other words, if it could be established that Abraham was justified by his works, which it can't, but if it could be established that he was justified by his own merit, then Abraham would be right to boast in himself for his salvation. And there would be no reason to boast in God. Paul, make no mistake, Paul is zeroing in on a theology of justification by works. He is zeroing in on it because it is something that his Jewish brothers and sisters are confusing in the Scriptures. They, they have this perspective that, well, yeah, faith, yes, but, but works. You've got to have obedience. You've got to have circumcision. You've got to have law in your life. And Paul is zeroing in on this in showing the fallacy. He's showing the air of that perspective. Paul is really critiquing a theology of salvation by works. And I want to bring up that and show you some of the deficiencies that Paul is noting about a theology of salvation by works. First is this. It encourages human boasting and pride. And these are kind of elementary, but I just want to kind of go through them. Secondly is this. A salvation by works makes the cross of Christ of no effect. You've done it on your own merit. What does the cross even matter? Number three, it eliminates God's grace. All the, all the mention of grace in the Scriptures, if salvation is by works, then, then what's the point of grace? Four, it withholds glory from God. And five, it is centered on man and not God. Now again, these are, these are kind of elementary statements here, but I just want to break it down. This is what Paul is saying. 
He's critiquing salvation by works. He's critiquing the Jewish perspective that you've got to have circumcision, you've got to have law, you've got to have perseverance, you've got to have all these things. And Paul says, no, you don't. Because when you go down the path, on any level, when you start going down the path of salvation by works, you put the focus on you and not on the cross of Christ. Paul readily admits that Abraham could boast if he was justified by works. But he certainly couldn't boast in God. Salvation by works doesn't give a lot of attention to God. Such theology causes men and women to spend more time looking at their own piety, their own conduct, and less time considering the marvelous nature of the cross that has secured their salvation. Remember Paul's words in Romans 2, verse 4? He says, look, it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. It's the goodness of God, not your own merits. And he says again in Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Where is boasting? It is excluded. By what? Law of works? No, but by the law of faith. There is no more boasting. There is no more pride. There, there, there is no more looking at yourself and saying, I did it. I accomplished it. I, I, I got myself justified. I was able to secure my salvation. Paul says none of that. None of that is true. It is entirely the goodness, the grace of God that leads you to repentance. It is entirely being justified freely by His grace. Where is boasting? It's nowhere. It's nowhere. Not one of us can boast that we have secured our own salvation. Not one of us can do that. Of course, Paul really doesn't believe that Abraham was justified by works. He just used that as a hypothetical. In fact, Paul has quite a high regard for Abraham. He has great regard for this great patriarch of the faith. And in verse 3, Paul is jumping at the bit. He cannot wait to declare just how the Scriptures say Abraham was justified. Take a look at verse 3. He says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures don't speak of Abraham being justified by his works in an eternal sense. The Scriptures say in Genesis 15, verse 6, if you go back to Genesis, you'll read this as plain as day, and Paul quotes this, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How was he justified? How did he receive salvation? How did Abraham become a part of the family of God? He believed the Lord. Abraham exhibited faith. Now here in Romans 4, Paul really doesn't get into the nuances of exactly what Abraham believed that justified him, but he does allude to it later on in another book in Galatians 3. Notice what it says about Abraham's faith. He says in the Scriptures, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Abraham received the Gospel. He received the good news. He didn't have a perfect working knowledge 
of what was going to happen some 2,000 years down the road, but the Lord made mention to him that a Redeemer was coming. That the Messiah was coming. And that Abraham and his seed would tell people about this Redeemer, would tell people about this Messiah, and that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Abraham believed that. The Lord gave the Gospel to Abraham, and Abraham believed. He was justified by faith in the coming Redeemer, in the promise of blessing. What happened as a result of that belief? Verse 3 says, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What happened? As a result of his faith, from that point on, God considered Abraham righteous. And pay attention to that little word, it, there, okay? Where it says, uh, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The word it there goes back to the belief. Abraham believed God, and his belief, his faith, was credited to him as righteousness. What he did there in that act of faith was accounted to him. It was credited to him. God took the faith of Abraham and said, because of this faith, I give you new birth. I give you new life. I credit to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You haven't done the law on your own. You haven't performed on your own. It's not your obedience. It's not your perseverance. None of that. God is crediting Abraham righteousness simply because Abraham believes Him for it. Paul means to say that Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness. It was a faith righteousness. Not a works righteousness. Zane Hodges writes this of of, of this verse. He says, God accepts faith in Jesus as a fully adequate substitute for any and all works of whatever kind they may be. Abraham's faith became a substitute for the righteousness he otherwise lacked. Utterly of faith. Utterly by grace. God credited Abraham with righteousness because he believed in him for it. That's astounding. Paul has been very clear on where he stands on the role of works in salvation. But in verse 4, he has perhaps his finest moment in debunking salvation by works. This is what he says in verse 4. He says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I think of, uh, I think of, uh, how many of you have ever been to a timeshare presentation? Raise your hand. All right. Don't you love them, right? Those timeshare presentations, man, those are fun, aren't they? You know, why do we go to a timeshare presentation? Why do you go? 
the free stuff, right? The incentives, right? They, they, I mean, they, they wazzle you and dazzle you with all sorts of free stuff. You get free dinners. You get free hotel stays. They, they show you the, I mean, they show you all the great stuff. And, and, and you know, they, they, they show you Hawaii and they show you Europe and they show you safaris in Africa. And then you finish the timeshare presentation and you go to get your certificate and it says three days, two nights at the Holiday Inn in Sedona, Arizona. Kind of like, oh. Is that worth it? I don't know. Now, uh, during a timeshare presentation, they always say, what do they say? 60, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, that's all, right? But you end up being there a good two hours, of course. You watch videos, you take the walking tour, you listen to the sales pitch, and then they get to the price, right? Then they get to the price, and they say, okay, for all of this, for all the things I've showed you here, here's the price. and you can have a week in Hawaii for the rest of your life. And you say, nah, no thanks. And they go, guess what? I got another deal for you. Guess what? For $8,000, for $8,000, I will give you this same deal in Hawaii a week forever for just $8,000. And you look at your wife and you can't do it. No, no, thanks. And he goes, let me talk to my boss. And he goes over to his boss and pretends to whisper something in his ear, you know. Hey, boss. And he comes back to you. Hey, my boss. That guy right over there has just given me the okay to offer you the best deal I've ever offered to anyone. One week in Hawaii for the rest of your life. $6,000. What do you say? And you say, no thanks. And then they finally give up, right? And they send you off to the lady who gives you the gift. Okay, so you, now you're walking. You're done with the sales pitch. You walk over to the counter. And the lady, she, she secures the gift. You're, you're, and she hands it to you. And you take the gift. And what do you do? You get out of there, right? You don't want to be there any longer. You've been there two hours. You've been watching videos, getting sales pitches. You're so tired of this that you just want to take that gift and get the heck out of here. Now, imagine for a moment, would you ever, would you ever, upon receiving that gift, would you ever say to the woman who gave you that gift, thank you. Thank you so much. You're you're giving me three days and two nights at the Holiday Inn in Sedona, Arizona. Thank you. You are so kind to me. I really appreciate it. What can I do for you? Would you ever do that? Why? Because you worked. You earned it. Who said it, Jack? You worked for that three-day, two-night at the Holiday Inn in Sedona, Arizona. You don't, you're not sitting there going, thank you so much. You're not sitting there praising the, the woman who's given you the gift. You're not sitting there showing this amazing amount of, of gratitude and thankfulness and gratefulness. You want to take that gift and you want to get the heck out of here. Paul says, Now to him who works, The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. When you work for something, or when you work for someone, you get paid. Why? 
Because they owe you a debt for the labor that you have accomplished. Now, why is Paul saying this? When someone believes they can work their way to heaven, in reality, they are saying, I, by my deeds, can put God in my debt. When you believe that you can work your way to heaven, in reality, you are saying, I, by my own merit, by my own works, by my own obedience, I can put God in my debt. If I work hard, God owes it to me. If I labor and persevere, God should give me something for that. And far from showing humility, far from showing a debt toward God, those who believe in salvation by works are actually putting God in their debt. But to Him, now to Him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. They're putting God in their debt. And to that, Paul says, how dare they? How dare they put the Lord in their debt? How dare they consider salvation on those terms? Verse 5, but to him, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. These are powerful words here. Notice how it starts. But to him who does not work. But to him who does not work. It's not a merit thing. Salvation is not an obedience thing. It's the one who's not working for their salvation. It's the one who's trusting the Lord for their salvation that Paul elevates. Works are not needed. What is needed is belief in Christ. Works make us put God in our debt. Faith makes us indebted to God. When we come to grips with the simplicity of salvation by faith, by grace, through faith, and not by works, when we come to grips with this amazing grace, something miraculous happens. Our hearts become indebted to the, to the Lord. Our hearts become indebted to the Lord. And when we see God's salvation for what it really is, a free gift, it wells us up with gratefulness and causes us to be indebted to God for the rest of our lives. Paul's really, look, he's saying, look, readers, those who are reading my words, those who are hearing my theology, you tell me what's God's plan. Is God's plan that people are saved by obedience and works, which puts God in their debt? Or are people saved by grace through faith, which puts people in God's debt? For Paul, the choice is clear. We are to be indebted to God. We are not to put God, we are not to make God indebted to us. And he, Paul, Paul goes on now to describe the blessedness of that moment when we are indebted to God because of what He has done for us. And he mentions David here. Look at verse 6. He says, look, it's just as David. David also describes the blessedness of the man. 
to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin, but righteousness instead. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, what a blessing it is to not have sin counted against you, to be forgiven, to have your sins covered, and to have righteousness covering you. The righteousness of Christ. David knew of what Paul spoke. He too spoke of God, crediting righteousness to us by faith, apart from works. And in doing this, Paul has now established two testimonies, if you will, for his theology. He's shown how Abraham was justified by faith and believed that message. And now he's shown how David believed that message. And upon the the witness of two testimonies, upon the, 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 the mention of two witnesses, things can be established, Paul says. That's how the Jews would approach the Scriptures. That's how the Jews would approach any kind of judgment, any kind of court situation. Two witnesses were required. Abraham is making witness, is, is bearing witness of Paul's theology. David is bearing witness of Paul's theology. Verse 9. Does this blessedness, Paul asks, then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? You might be thinking, well, where's Paul going with this? Why is he talking about circumcision so much? Remember his audience. Paul starting this whole conversation in chapter 4, speaking to the Jewish audience. He's saying, look, it's not about circumcision. It's not about law. It's not about works. It's about faith. And here he comes to verse 9, and he says, look, does this blessedness, does this salvation, does this justification by faith, does it come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? How did it happen for Abraham? Was, was he, did he have to get circumcised first and then he was justified? Or, 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 or was the order reversed? Paul answers his question as he finishes up verse 10. Notice what he says. He says, look, not while circumcised did Abraham receive justification by faith. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Why? That Abraham might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Paul's making a very crystal clear point to his audience. And we're looking at this and we're going, what is all this talk here? To Paul's audience, they got it right off the bat. They understood where he was going with this. They realized that Paul was making the argument that, hey, Abraham, you read Genesis? Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Genesis 15.6 speaks of Abraham's justification. It is not until Genesis chapter 17 
that Abraham is then circumcised. And Paul's argument is this. He says, look, my fellow Israelites, if it were true that circumcision was required for salvation, if it were true that obedience to the law were required for salvation, if it were true that good works were required for salvation, then why was Abraham justified before he was circumcised? And to that, his audience has no answer. To that, his audience has no answer. All they can say, all they can do, is to agree with Paul. That salvation does not come by obedience. Salvation doesn't come by following laws. Salvation comes by faith. But back in... Chapter 4, verse 1, I mean, remember in your Bible what he said at the very start? He said, What then shall we say that Abraham has found according to the flesh? What is the benefit of Abraham's circumcision? The Jews are asking, well, what's the point of his circumcision if it mattered not for his salvation? Paul answers the question right here at the very close of, of this study. He says, look, it's a sign. It's a seal. It's a demonstration of favor. Much like a wedding ring, it signifies something much deeper. That's what circumcision did for the Jews. It signified something much more significant than just a physical act. It was a sign that Abraham was part of the family of God by faith. So Paul was using Abraham here to powerfully connect to his audience. He has connected the Gentiles to Abraham, the non-Jews, to Abraham. How? Because he's reminded them that Abraham was justified while still uncircumcised. And yet at the same time, he's reminded his Jewish brethren of the real heritage of Abraham, of the real legacy of Abraham. Not a legacy of obedience to circumcision and law, but a legacy of justification by faith. That's the legacy of Abraham. That he believed God and that it was credited to his account as righteousness. And what happened to Abraham? He became the father of all who believe, it says in verse 7. In verse 8, the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Tom Wright makes mention of just what Paul has done with Abraham. He writes it beautifully here. This is what he says. He says, look, Paul has redefined. He's redefined. Set new boundaries on the family of Abraham in two ways. First, he has opened it up so it contains Gentiles as well as Jews. And second, however, he has narrowed it down so it no longer includes all Jews automatically because membership in Abraham's family is on the basis of faith. Paul's setting new parameters for those who are in the family of Abraham. Nothing to do with obedience and circumcision. Nothing to do with law. You are son of Abraham. You are following in the footsteps of Abraham when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jew or Gentile. That's when you're a son of Abraham, Paul says. That's when you're listening to your father. A closing thought. Now, we might be 
uh, we might be thinking, man, this is kind of heady today. Uh, what Does this have any application to me today? We've just been talking about circumcision and law and works and this, that, and the other. But here, here's where Paul's going with this. He's saying this. He's saying so much of our earthly life is performance-based. He, he, he recognizes that. So much of our earthly life is performance-based. But, he, but he, can't, he, he adds this. Salvation is not performance-based. It's not works-based. It's not obedience-based. It's not perseverance-based. On earth, if we get A's in school, we get to go to a great college. On earth, if we excel in our job, we get a raise. On earth, if we sit through a two-hour timeshare presentation, we get three days and two nights at the Holiday Inn in Sedona, Arizona. All those things happen on earth. They're performance-based. Paul says it's not like that with salvation. It's not like that with justification by faith. Salvation is not performance-based. If it were, Paul says, then we would have something to boast about in ourselves. And the Bible makes it very clear that that is certainly not the case. Ephesians 2, By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In Galatians 6.14, But God forbid, Paul says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. God forbid that I should boast in anything but the cross. Our faith in Jesus who died for us is what secures our eternal destiny. It's not based on performance. So friends, as we leave today, let us boast in the Lord. Let us boast in Him for His miraculous and free gift. And let us never boast in ourselves. Abraham, justified by faith, let us walk in the footsteps of our Father. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this time in Your Word Lord, it's, uh, it's not easy when, uh, Father, we're sifting through some of the history of the, of the Jewish mindset, Lord. They were very concerned with law and circumcision and obedience and these sorts of things. And it's not always readily apparent, Lord, what Paul is arguing against and for in, in the text. But God, we can relate with this whole idea of performance-based righteousness. We know what that's like, Lord. On this earth, Father, we're working and we're receiving pay. We labor and we get a a just compensation for that labor. And it's easy, Lord, for us to think that our salvation is somehow the same way. That we work for it. That we earn it. That it's ours. Somehow that it's on our dime, our merit. God, teach us that salvation is never performance-based. That it is entirely of You. That it is entirely of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You secured it. Your Son died. He paid the price. He has offered it to us freely by faith in Him. Lord, let us shed the desire to perform for righteousness. And let us look utterly to the cross and find the righteousness we're looking for. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.